welcome to Oncology Data Advisor. Today we're here doing a live interview in honor of World Lung Cancer Day. So I'm joined by Beth Sandy, who's one of our editorial board members, as well as Dr. Corey Langer. So thank you both for joining us. Would you like to introduce yourselves? Yeah, I'm Beth Sandy. I'm a nurse practitioner in the Cancer Center at the University of Pennsylvania in Philadelphia, and my primary practice specialty is lung cancer. And with me, I have the chief of our thoracic oncology department, Dr. Langer. You want to introduce yourself? Sure, I'm Corey Langer. I'm the director of thoracic oncology, what we call the ITOP, the Interdisciplinary Thoracic Oncology Program at uh, the University of Pennsylvania, Perlman School of Medicine. And uh, reintroduced Beth as uh, really one of the first, if not the first thoracic uh, oncology nurse practitioners, not just at Penn, but I think in the Delaware Valley. So uh, you're really, uh, you're sort of the prototype, Beth. <laughs> <laughs> Getting old. Not that old. <laughs> so we're excited to hear today about some of, you know, the latest advances in immunotherapy and targeted therapy. Uh, so with that, Beth, I'll let you take it away. Yeah. So thank you, Dr. Langer, for joining me. Um, you know, we just wanted to really give a positive update on all the things going on with lung cancer now. Um, why don't you start off? Why don't we start off with immunotherapy? Um, let's go there first and just kind of where we've been and where we are now. Any ASCO updates that you think are interesting from this year. Um, take it away. So immunotherapy, particularly for those patients with uh, metastatic or recurrent disease and do not have oncogenic drivers, has really led to a revolution in how we practice. It's irrevocably altered the therapeutic landscape. So um, we generally approach these patients based on their PDL1 status. Uh, PDL1 50% or higher, PEMBRO alone or PEMBRO plus chemo, really depending on the clinical situation. There are a number of trials now, of course, looking at new combinations. Less than 50%, at least it's our practice to uh, give histology specific chemo plus PEMBRO. And all of these approaches have led to monumental improvements in um, survival. When uh, you and I started out, Beth, uh, median survival at best was 10 to 12 months. Uh, one-year survival rates, if we hit 40%, we're grateful. If we hit 20%, two-year survival, that was astounding. When I started out, actually, the median survival was about six months. So um, we made major headway with uh, regimens like the Keno 189 uh, uh, approach, uh, median survival for non-squamous, non-small cell uh, without uh, uh, oncogenic drivers, is about 22, 23 months. So our median survivals now are exceeding our, you know, even our PFS are exceeding what used to be our survival rate. So it's really quite astonishing. Um, we've seen some recent updates in five-year survival. Um, for instance, the Keynote 024 trial, uh, if we look specifically at uh, the patients who are receiving single-agent Pembro, for 50% or higher PDL1 expression, their five-year survival rates are approaching 30, 33%. About a third can expect to be alive. I know. I found that to be amazing. A third of patients are surviving five years with metastatic disease in that high PDL1 subgroup. And, and this is I, without chemotherapy. This is without a platinum. I know it's amazing. And I even saw something recently that Dr. Marmorellis, one of our um, people in our group, had put out that even like the 90% and higher even do better. Um, yeah. So it's it's like worth checking, um, you know, to even see if they're more than 90%. So I think there's a tendency to divide everybody into just three basic groups, less than 1%, one to 49, 50% or higher. 
but there are definitely nuances. So if we look at the, the really high expressors, 80, 90, 100%, I guess there's no such thing as 100%, but 95%, we are seeing relatively better uh, median and long-term uh, survival. So that it's definitely a continuum, particularly above 50%. And uh, intriguingly, there are some studies now that are uh, uh, essentially segregating out or um, uh, basing their results 50 to 74% and 75% or higher, you know. So differing um, the cut point. You know. So tell me what you think about moving now immunotherapy into the early stage setting with data now for looking at um, drugs like atezolizumab in the adjuvant setting, nivolumab in the neoadjuvant setting. What are your thoughts there? Well, here too, just in the last two years, uh, we've seen uh, major advances. Uh, obviously, uh, the metastatic recurrence setting is really the proving ground for new agents, but if it's going to make a real difference in overall survival and cure rates, it's got to be moved to the uh, resectable or locally advanced setting. So I think all of that started, of course, with Pacific and the addition of DERVA uh, for up to a year uh, post-definitive chemo radiation. There we're seeing a 43% five-year survival. Remember, historically, at best, we were about 15 to 25%. So that in and of itself is quite amazing. And now it's been moved even earlier uh, in the adjuvant or neoadjuvant setting. Uh, the Empower 010 trial looked at atezolizumab in uh, patients who had undergone definitive resection and chemotherapy, adjuvant platinum-based chemo, for four cycles after resection of stage 1B through 3A disease. And there was a clear-cut DFS benefit, disease-free survival benefit, for um, those with node-positive, pdl one positive uh, tumors. When you slice and dice the data, though, it gets a little bit more nuanced. The greatest benefit was 50% or higher. It's a little less evident for the 1% to 49%, and there's no approval below 1%. So I think I, I embrace that approach with enthusiasm, certainly for those with higher expression, with some degree of ambivalence, I think, for the 1% to 49%. Remember, we do not yet have OS data. I think once we get the overall survival data, we'll be a bit more compelled or a bit more convinced. Um, the neoadjuvant setting, which is an area that we haven't typically explored all that much at Penn, uh, certainly not with just chemo alone, although um, predating my arrival, that was used a lot. Um, the addition of nivolumab to histology-specific chemo, or in some cases, just PAC-carbo, and the 816 was the PAC-carbo approach, has led to a major improvement in pathologic complete responses, uh, major pathologic regressions, which is defined as 90% or greater shrinkage. No harm when it comes to surgery. Uh, in fact, the uh, uh, resection rates of anything are a bit higher than the control group, uh, the R0 resection rates. And uh, pneumonectomy is slightly less common in the group that got neoadjuvant. And that too is now translated into a DFS benefit, yeah. that 11 month improvement. So. The big struggle there is which patients are we going to use that approach on? Uh, two thirds of the patients accrued had 3A disease. And I think that's where we're concentrating our artillery. This is a group where the surgeons probably don't necessarily want to operate up front. Uh, I mean, that's the majority of where we give neoadjuvant treatment anyway, would be those 3A, right? Historically, we were approaching those folks with chemo or more commonly chemo radiation, then trying to do surgery. The notion that we can substitute immunotherapy for radiation and get hopefully as good or better outcomes is really quite novel. 
Um, the surgeons, uh, 1B, stage two, they can operate on those folks up front. And if they're eligible, they would then go on to a tezolizumab if they uh, qualify uh, post-resection, post-adjuvant chemo. So we really have an array of options. And to be blunt, none of this uh, was even on our radar 10 or 12 years ago. Uh, the immunotherapy, uh, the approvals only emerged in 2015, 2016. The first line approvals, 2018. It's only four years ago. Yeah, really cool. Let's switch gears now and talk about targeted therapy, mm -hmm. um, our other, uh, you know, area of huge improvements in lung cancer, which again, you know, Corey, back in the early 2000s, when I was starting doing this, I, you know, we didn't know about molecular testing and biomarkers and how they're driving cancer. And, and now we have nine that we can target. Um, nine and counting. <laughs> I know you're right. It's just, it's amazing. So, I mean, I don't even know where to start with all nine. I mean, obviously we can start, you know, the early ones we knew about the EGFR Alcross one, and that's just really snowballed now into RET, MET, KRAS, um, you know, from my standpoint, before I let you talk about it, from my standpoint is we have to do the testing and, you know, we are getting better. Um, there was a great article last month, I think, in uh, Journal of Thoracic Oncology, looking at um, how we are improving testing in, especially in community. It looked at academic and community testing, um, but it still shows about a third of eligible patients, um, you know, those non-squamous, particularly adenocarcinoma patients with non-small cell lung cancer, uh, still not being getting a full broad molecular panel. Um, so we have to do the testing in order to find these and you will find them, um, not in everyone, but we will find these targets if you're testing. So what are your thoughts on testing and then and these targeted therapies? So I, I think your point is very well made. If you don't look, you won't find. And uh, very early work from the Lung Cancer Mutation Consortium showed that folks who had oncogenic drivers and received the appropriate targeted therapy did far better than those who do not have oncogenic drivers whose tumors weren't harboring these uh, molecular aberrations, or those who harbored the molecular aberrations did not get appropriate uh, molecular therapy. So early on, the, the survival advantage was evident. Um, the big issue, of course, is the turnaround time and getting the test results. Uh, NGS, next generation sequencing, at best can be done within maybe two weeks of biopsy. I think on average, at our institution and elsewhere, it's three to four weeks. It's labor intensive. It requires uh, um, batching and staining. It's a, a big panel. Um, it gets uh, doubly difficult if we're trying to procure specimens from outside as opposed to those obtained in-house. Um, and then sometimes even after the most diligent work, the DNA is um, de degraded or denatured. Uh, the DNA, you, know, you get that awful uh, result, QNS, quantity not sufficient. So all that work ultimately for nothing. So we have uh, been on the forefront of initiatives looking at paired tissue and liquid biopsies. Uh, we actually have an initiative at Penn. Uh, as soon as a uh, patient with metastatic recurrent disease, uh, certainly non-squamous, but even squamous to some extent, uh, gets registered in our system, we are making arrangements for a liquid biopsy. And uh, the liquid biopsies are getting better and better. They're um, steadily uh, improving in sensitivity. They're still not as good as tissue in sensitivity, maybe 70%. And if the tumor burden is low, maybe just confined to the chest, the uh, likelihood of discovering or identifying molecular aberrations in the um, blood goes down. But the specificity is very good. 
it's close to 98, 99%. If you discover it in the blood, it's real and you will probably almost definitely find it in the tissue. So the two approaches complement each other. Uh, when we first piloted this approach, our identification rate with tissue alone was maybe 20, 22%. When we added liquid, it went up to 35%. So 15% uh, absolute uh, improvement in the number of patients we identified who could uh, be treated with an appropriate oncogenic driver. Uh, Chair Agarwal, who's uh, um, the head of uh, personalized uh, uh, medicine initiatives at Penn, and really uh, uh, one of the uh, stellar players in our thoracic oncology group. She also leads the uh, CRU, uh, the Airways uh, Research uh, Group within our institution. She and Jeff Thompson from Interventional Pulmonary and Erica Carpenter, uh, molecular um, uh, biologist, uh, uh, a non-MD, but uh, a, a person in charge of a circulating tumor lab, have um, uh, started other initiatives looking at guideline concordant testing. And doing the two together improves our uh, guideline concordance by uh, up to 90, 95%. Folks who get tested early, and we are able to identify, uh, get their oncogenic uh, uh, results uh, and delay treatment until we get those results. So base our treatments on a full panel. They have better outcomes. Their survival rates are better than those we initiate um, with the incomplete results. And that's in large part because A, we're identifying more oncogenic drivers and B, we're avoiding the inappropriate use of immunotherapy in a group that would preferentially benefit from targeted therapy. So it's really been a landmark uh, uh, approach. Uh, Charo had the uh, uh, privilege of presenting her data during a poster discussion in ASCO, and I think it's one of the, the more important papers. It was a series of uh, nearly 300 patients from our institution over a two-year period ending in uh, 2020. So there too, I mean, we have osimertinib, clearly superior to older first-generation TKIs like erlotinib and jafitinib, not just in uh, progression-free survival, but CNS penetrance. Um, sadly, the final common pathway for many of these patients is CNS disease and increasingly leptomeningeal disease. I don't know about you, Beth, but I think in the last two years, I've seen more leptomeningeal disease than I saw in the previous 20 years. Well, no, I think but, we're controlling yeah. the body disease better and it's just giving them time to so, develop the CNS meds, yeah. It's a, unfortunately, it's a, it's a devastating uh, event when it occurs and our, um, Therapeutic armamentarium there is limited. Uh, so it's really the new frontier of major unmet need. Uh, we've seen major advances in ALK. Uh, at one point I thought we had more ALK agents than we had patients, but those numbers uh, are clear. About four to 8% of those with uh, uh, non-squamous, non-small cell have ALK. Um, EGFR, depending on which region of the country, could be as high as 20, 25%. In our area, it's about 15, 17%. Um, got, Three great agents for ALK, electinib, brigatinib, lorlatinib, all better than their predecessor, crizotinib. Uh, RET uh, fusion, only in the last two years, we've seen approvals, selpercatinib, prilocetinib with response rates of 60, 70%, PFS of 18, 20 months, uh, really on, in the range of uh, uh, the EGFR data. Yeah, they get, they get the really good, like two years, three years. durable responses yeah. in those patients. I do, I definitely get hypertension in some of those RET patients though. So something to certainly look out for. 
there, there, to some extent, there are a lot of off-target effects that we have to be cognizant of. And frankly, in many ways, this is more of a challenge than chemo. Chemo is very predictable. You know, yeah. you get the fatigue and then maybe some nausea and you get myelosuppression, but it, it eases up after uh, 10 to 14 days and you can predict what's going to happen. The side effects here can be <laughs> delayed. They can be severe. They can be mild. They, without making much changes, they can go from severe to mild. So it's, a, it's really the art of medicine is managing the uh, and frankly the uh, you Beth uh, you're on the forefront of that management the, the, yeah. the initial calls go into to you folks um, tell me a little about KRAS I'd like to hear about that before we end KRAS is um, quite intriguing um, it really is the most common uh, oncogenic driver but until the last two years it was totally untargetable um, in part because of the shape of the structure of the receptor and uh, um, it was very hard to target. Uh, but we've seen the development now of two and counting drugs that uh, uh, one of which is now approved, Sotorasib, another one imminently approvable, uh, Atagrasib. Both in the second line setting have response rates of about 35 to 40%. So not quite as stellar as we've seen with the ALK, uh, RET, ROS1, and EGFR inhibitors, but still quite respectable. Certainly something we choose ahead of docetaxel, I would say. Yeah. Um, and PFS. something that like mm. those patients will respond a lot of times to chemoimmunotherapy pretty right. well up front, whereas we don't see that as much with the other like EGFR, ALK and ROS1, but these KRAS patients often, they get good responses to chemoimmunotherapy up front. So we're generally, you know, using these drugs and specifically for the G12C, KRAS G12C, right. but in that second line setting, you know, so, so it's a little bit different than what we're used to, where those other drivers, we always use it up front. You know, this we're using second line. The, the PFS is only about six and a half, seven months, so not quite as good. Survivals are one to one and a half years. So I agree, it's second line. So there are two challenges there. One is to make that better to the point that we might consider frontline. And there, um, at least the rumors state that uh, it's been a bit hard combining sotorasib with some of the standard checkpoint inhibitors. Not clear if that difficulty will extend to other agents. Atagrasib may be a bit more combinable, but atagrasib also seems to have a bit more toxicity. So, um, you know, it becomes a dealer's choice. Uh, the other issue, of course, as you pointed out, Beth, only about half those with KRAS mutations have G12C. The others are not yet targetable. So another area of major unmet need are the, uh, the remaining KRAS patients. You add all this up, KRAS, EGFR, ALP, ROS1, RET, MET, HER2, uh, whatever, NTRAC. NTRAC, uh, technically. Right? <laughs> um, we're talking, if we, particularly if we include KRAS, uh, probably 55, 60% of our patients. If you yeah, subtract yeah. KRAS, then it's only about 35%, but it's still a huge number. And it's really incumbent upon us to identify these oncogenic drivers as quickly and as efficiently as we can. Uh, otherwise, we're depriving folks of uh, um, life prolonging uh, therapy and uh, not just prolonged uh, life, but improved quality of life by and large. Yeah, certainly. Anything else you want to um, end up with? Uh, final thoughts on state of lung cancer today on this World Lung Cancer Day? <laughs> so I think um, the other major initiative, we're going to see a lot more data going forward or uh, a new class of compounds called ADCs, antibody drug conjugates. So they're unique. Uh, the antibodies identify a specific antigen or receptor in the cancer cell, and then through a linker deliver um, a 
essentially a cell poison, a toxic payload, a, a, a chemotherapy drug, if you will, but something that can be delivered directly to the tumor and preferentially penetrate the tumor and avoid uh, uh, collateral damage to normal cells. So the first example of this in uh, thoracic world is uh, trastuzumab deruxtecan targets HER2. And uh, remember, it's trastuzumab. So we think of HER2 as uh, targeting agents as uh, really in the breast cancer realm, but up to 3% of patients with uh, non-small cell lung cancer, non-squamous, have HER2. Phenotypically, they look like EGFR and ALK patients, generally never smokers, uh, probably a, a somewhat higher proportion of women. And uh, this uh, targeted delivery system yields a response rate of 55%. Uh, it's a PFS of about eight months. So it's clearly in the second line realm, it's unclear whether it's going to move into the first line realm. Um, some toxicity, uh, the big concern is interstitial lung disease. Uh, and uh, although it can be steroid responsive, it can be devastating. I think in the final reports, there were two uh, putative fatalities attributed to it. But really the ultimate, so taking targeted therapy and moving it beyond oral agents into the uh, uh, ADC world. And I think certainly for the next three to five years, we're going to see that and we're going to see new immunotherapy combinations uh, using some drugs many of us haven't even heard of yet that I think will ultimately make a difference both in 50% or higher and then the larger uh, group of uh, those with less than 50% expression. Yeah. All right. Thank you so much. Yeah, I'm looking forward to new immunotherapy combinations, tar getting new, you know, immune targets like, you know, Tigit and Lag3 and things like that. Um, combining those with our current PD-1 inhibitors or new PD-1 inhibitors. Um, I think, you know, just looking at these different combinations is what I have to look forward to and what we're seeing in clinical trials here, which is exciting. So, all right. I want to thank you, Dr. Langer, for joining thank us. Um, and Kira, I'll send it back to you. Okay. Yes, thank you both so much. It was so exciting to hear about all these new advances and all the work that's being done. So thank you again for your time. Thank you for listening to Oncology Data Advisor. Be sure to subscribe to the podcast so you'll never miss an episode. In addition to our podcast, the Oncology Data Advisor site features expert perspectives and news stories on the latest in cancer research and treatments, all found at oncdata.com. Music